The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hello again, my name is Dr. Greg Whitcomb. I'm a chiropractic physician um, on staff at the Medical College of Wisconsin Spine Care Clinic and associate professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at MCW. I'm joined once again by my co-chair, Sherry Weiser, as well as a, a group of um, very interesting uh, people to discuss real-world barriers to the implementation of psychologically informed practice. Uh, we recognize when we developed the course the importance of sort of getting out of the silo of clinicians, talking to the clinicians about what ought to change in the broader system. And we all recognize that there are significant obstacles to uh, implementing a biopsychosocial model vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, psychologically informed practice. And we're very pleased to uh, uh, be joined today uh, by a number of thought leaders in this area. And I'm going to ask them, starting with uh, Lynn Guffel, to introduce themselves and we'll move th uh, through the roster. So welcome everyone. Mm -hmm. Hello everyone, my name is Lynn Guffeld. I'm an outpatient nurse practitioner uh, focusing in spine care at Virginia Commonwealth University Health System in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I see a wide variety of acute and chronic conditions and manage them mostly conservatively. Um, often we'll refer to spine surgeons, but I use a variety of interdisciplinary referral sources. And um, I also have a very small little integrative practice uh, within spine that I can funnel my patients to. Mm -hmm. Ryan? Hi, I'm uh, uh, Brian Justice, um, a chiropractor by training, uh, wearing a few hats today um, as medical director of Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, Excellus, which is a middle-sized insurer in upstate New York, uh, a founding member of a company called Spine Care Partners, and um, an adjunct professor at the University of Rochester School of Medicine, and a NAS member for over 10 years now. And uh, Dr. Campello. Hi, so thanks for having me here. I'm a physical therapist by training. I am the director of the Occupational Industry Orthopedic Center at New York University Hospital Center, and also I'm an associate professor at the Department of Orthopedics from NYU Grossman um, Medicine, School of Medicine. And lastly, uh, we're joined by uh, Dr. Todd Wetzel, uh, past president of North American Spine Society. Good morning, Todd. Morning. Uh, as uh, Brian, as uh, uh, Greg said, uh, past president of currently chair of orthopedic surgery and sports medicine at Bassett Healthcare Network, a rural academic network in Cooperstown, New York, in a affiliate of Columbia. And previously on faculty at Temple University. Yeah, professor at the University of Chicago and at Temple University, correct. Okay. So welcome everyone. Um, and to kick this off, I just want to review literature that perhaps most people are familiar with, but I think uh, is certainly worth repeating. And this is uh, taken directly from a uh, monograph recently published by one of our faculty members, Steve George at Duke University. Um, Low back pain is second only to upper respiratory infection as a reason for primary care office uh, visits in the United States. It's the leading cause of disability worldwide as demonstrated by the World Health Organization uh, Global uh, Burden of Disease uh, Analysis. Uh, rates of chronic low back pain result in disability that continue to increase despite advances in biomedical care and intervention. 
The societal impact of low back pain cannot be attributed to undertreatment, especially in the United States. We are now approaching $150 billion in annual revenues, the majority of which remains uh, uh, through the private health insurance uh, market, although public insurance is increasing as well in this area. Surgical man with low back pain is costly, but incurred by a relatively uh, small percentage of low back pain patients. Uh, and the preponderance of costs still remain in the uh, venue of ambulatory care setting, uh, which, are, which is characterized by overutilization of low-value services, including advanced imaging, uh, spinal injections, and um, perhaps most notably uh, opioid medications leading to our current day crisis. Um, accordingly, the ineffective uh, management of low back pain is a significant contributor uh, to uh, cost overrun and the most common diagnosis for prescriptions despite no evidence of sustained benefit with many of the treatments uh, that we apply. Um, so to that end, we now are confronted with what do we need to do to close the gap here? Uh, we keep making advances and there's, it's inarguable and I think was well um, discussed by our uh, recent past president, Eric Trumez and his uh, farewell address to NAS that we've made significant advances in surgical techniques over the last 25 years. Um, and we've moved on with integrated spine care programs and all these different approaches from a biomedical standpoint, but we're still seeing this, this separation between what we're spending and what we're getting for our, uh, our investment. So I'd like to sort of kick this conversation off by uh, having Brian Justice lead off with sort of a perspective from the reimbursement uh, uh, sector because the health insurance sector because uh, one of the things that we hear very commonly is I don't get paid to spend time talking to my patients and counseling I recognize that perhaps they need that but there's no impetus for me to do that I'm not rewarded in my system where I'm very much looked at um, from an RVU perspective um, and how do I get around that so I'm just curious from your perspective where are we headed where have we been where are we headed and how do you see this playing out uh, from a reimbursement model uh, perspective? Wow, you hit me with a hard one right out, right out of the right out of the shoot here. Yeah. Um, but really, I look at my job as to incentivize the implementation of psychologically informed practice and and to kind of help with that translational process because everything you say it is true. You know, we're not paying for languaging, for motivation, for you know, engaging the patient verbally, um, and then. You know, that speaks to a fee-for-service model, which isn't working very well at all. Fee-for-service tends to pay for more, but doesn't pay for better, uh, which is why we have to evolve into a system that's that really embraces value and value-based reimbursement modeling. Um, and, and so, you know, some of the bundling is kind of getting closer to that, uh, but I think you're going to see more and more of an evolution into uh, more shared responsibility for health costs between uh, practitioners and communities and, 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 and payers. Um, you know, shared risk, shared reward, those kind of modelings, uh, maybe even total carve-outs. Um, so it, 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 it's, uh, you know, I, I, we don't have the answers uh, to, to what you're saying yet, but I do think when you look at the outcome from a case perspective, psychologically informed communication is extremely important in that. And so if you were rewarding for an outcome and not rewarding for a visit, then I think it will be uh, implicit and, and intuitive to the practitioner to use these tools. So that kind of leads me to the surgical and health systems perspective, Todd. And, and I'd like you to just kind of bounce off of what 
Brian just uh, discussed. Um, from your perspective, uh, because I mean, obviously the role of surgery continues, it's an important part of spine care. So I'm just curious to get your reaction to what uh, Brian just told us about. Well, by way of disclosure, uh, Brian and I have been working on a project uh, to try to educate primary care practitioners uh, here in New York uh, to and a big component of that is psychologically informed practice. Since we all know the best way to increase value and to um, um, keep patients satisfaction ratings higher is to keep patients out of the hands of specialists. And it hurts me to say that, but it's unfortunately quite true. <laughs> From a network perspective, uh, the amount of money that we are spending on unnecessary testing in particular is huge. And a lot of that in the approach to the educational low back pain, again, that uh, Dr. Justice and I have been working on, he's certainly the driver on it. I'm kind of a willing participant. Um, it's much easier to order a test rather than spend time talking to your patient and explaining the issue, uh, having the patient be a partner, having the patient participate in the care and establish a longitudinal relationship. From a specialist point of view, that's arguably harder because it's proceduralist. Despite compensation redesign, we are still uh, compensating proceduralists based on procedures, not necessarily quality time with patients or outcomes. Um, our colleagues in internal medicine with um, compensations, incentives for value-based care and hitting various targets are way, way ahead of interventionalists and surgeons. So I think our time is coming with that, but I'm not sure when it's going to occur. Um, the final point that uh, I'd like to make from a network point of view is to really emphasize the importance of having this percolate down to all levels of the network. Uh, primary care, particularly in a rural system such as ours, is stretched very, very thin. Um, they are under pressure uh, to hit various numbers and targets, and that, again, tends to go against the idea of spending time with a patient, clearly aligning your goals, clearly explaining natural history and treatment plans, and quite frankly, why it's been a struggle to educate primary care and the low back pain uh, program that Dr. Justice has developed. Um, in short, it's really a culture change and an attempt to modify practice patterns and human behavior, which is the most difficult challenge that any leader has and the one that's most challenging um, to make it last. Right, right. Couldn't agree more. So, uh, Dr. Campello, um, you're a physical therapist by training. Um, you have certainly dealt with this problem. And I think Todd and, and Brian both touched on it. That is that we have uh, patients coming in who have met with a primary care provider, perhaps, or a secondary level provider, um, have had advanced imaging and have been told that their spine has degenerative disc disease. Um, very little interaction or discussion uh, has occurred following the disclosure of those results. And they come to see you and um, you're now charged with getting them up and getting them moving and getting them back to work. So, uh, you know, is that how much of that is driven by physical care that you provide to the patient and uh, how much is driven by your counseling or interaction, personal interaction with the patient vis-a-vis -vis PIP? And how do you deal that with from a systems barrier standpoint? 
Well, <laughs> it's a good. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's more common than you think that you get the person or the patient to come without already all these preconceived ideas uh, because or of the poor communication with the providers and uh, our competition with Dr. Google, Google or the website information. So um, I then that is where I think when we uh, try to train the, the clinicians here at our, our facility is, it is important to communicate and communicate clearly and the patient has to buy in because it's not in five minutes that you're going to deconstruct all these years of, you know, um, bad communication perceptions and, you know, and all that, you know, load of, uh, of psychosocial issues that they come along with. Right. And uh, but I think teaching clinicians to actually have a a way, uh, I mean, to, to communicate that the, that makes sense to the patients uh, and, and try them to buy in in what you have to, that you are proposing for them to do uh, is, is a crucial. I think the very first encounter is crucial for uh, engaging or not the, the, the patients. Yeah, I mean, we, I, re I remember actually doing a panel discussion on this at uh, annual meeting for North American Spine Society, right? The, the critical importance of that first patient encounter. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, so. And, and, and the other aspect is if you look at nowadays, is uh, my, my, when I look at, you know, spine pain or oral musculoskeletal, uh, you know, nowadays you could say uh, the lifestyle, lifestyle is crucial in terms of that. And when you try to change lifestyle, it's not very easy. Right. You know, like the move or walking uh, is the new apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? So you want right. people to activate and it's not a, very easy, you know. Well, I think certainly what you're talking about here is fear avoidance behaviors that patients develop that we may perhaps unintentionally augment by giving them bad messages. And that's, the, you know, sort of underscores the importance of clarity and communication. So, um, Sherry, I'm sure you've got some thoughts and some questions you'd like to, to bring forward to the, to the panel. So I'll let you kick that off. Uh, yeah, like, I want to underscore what Dr. Capello was saying, um, that the first encounter is very, very important. And I think in terms of behavior change, we'll have to think about this as meeting the patient where they are. Um, we know that sometimes behavior is affected by fear, but the patient, the patient is very real. And so we have to learn how to listen to what the patient is telling us and ask them to create their own solutions to the problem and make them a partner. And I think the thing that distinguishes most clearly the biopsychosocial model from a biomedical model is that the biopsychosocial model is patient-centered, right? Not injury-centered, not you know, problem-focused. So I think that's the most important thing. Uh, the one thing that I would like to ask the clinicians and anybody else who would like to answer um, is in the situation that many of us find ourselves in, where we are siloed, how do we then apply this biopsychosocial approach 
when we don't have the support maybe of our institutions or of other healthcare professionals? How do we do that? Lynn, I think your thoughts would be appropriate at this point. <laughs> Excellent. I, I, fortunately, I'm, I do feel supported in my institution, but I could certainly, it took a little while to get there and to get the buy-in from other providers. So um, just making sure that you carve out the time for them. So my time is carved out for the patient in advance of the visit. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I can review their entire chart if they're a, a return patient to orthopedics or to our hospital system. So I can see who they've seen before. I could see what kind of procedures they've had, what they're coming, you know, what they're coming in with in addition to the pain that they think is located in their, in their back and is only coming from there. So that's, that's where my, my history starts. And I kind of um, already have a pathway for how my questions are going to go. And of course it's modified by what they tell me. So I start with that and just really try to, to figure things out from their story, maybe as I'm doing the exam, because I only have 30 minutes, but that's actually quite a luxury. So when we're talking about barriers, most, most outpatient orthopedic providers maybe only have 10, 15, or 20 minutes. So I do have 30 minutes, but if I only had 10 or 15, I would still try to start my assessment in advance, kind of figuring out their history, looking at their imaging, anticipating what, what they might be saying um, and trying to sift through in that short time, um, the meat of the story and the meat of the problem so that we can kind of dig in little by little later on. Um, and you know, I, I, I try to focus my first visit, again, listening to their story and then also trying to answer some of the big questions, ruling out some of the big flags so that I've kind of put aside, is this an you know, true anatomical issue? How much of this is, you know, is psychosocial? How much is their psychosocial issue a magnifier of the problem or is it really the entire problem? So I try to spend a lot of time really reassuring them in that first visit, if I can do that you know, with their imaging and with their exam to let them know like, here, this is, this is your age appropriate MRI scan. I don't see anything big, bad or scary here, which is a great thing, but you still have this pain that you're telling me about. You still have these limitations. So, you know, what are we gonna do from here? Cause I'm telling you, I don't see any need for surgery and that's wonderful. I don't see anything that I can tell you that you absolutely can't do, which is a fantastic thing, but you still have this pain. And so then we try to work together and little by little, you know, if I can give them that good news, we start to figure out a pathway for how do we move better? How do we have more function um, and less pain? Because they'll start to realize like, I don't have to be scared. I, nothing is going to break or wither away or crumble. I don't have a degenerative spine as everybody's been telling so, me. Yeah, so you're speaking very powerfully, right, to the, the impact of provider reassurance and taking the mm -hmm. time, making that a priority. I think our audience would be curious, particularly the advanced practice providers that will be watching us, to understand. You said you had, you felt you had institutional support, and, but you had to work for it. Work for it. So I'm just, yeah. in, a, in a nutshell, can you kind of give us a sense of what it took to break down those barriers <laughs> so that you could get the time necessary to be able to address yeah. issues at that level? Mm -hmm. So. I think my visits, my 30 minute visits were probably going to be cut down to 20. I think that was the plan initially, but I think because a lot 
because I was giving the patients time and I was listening, and then I might ask them to come back in two months or three months, maybe not so much to assess them, but just to check, check on them again, which they were more than happy to, to, you know, to come back. So I think the other providers, the other orthopedic surgeons and the administration realized that I was providing a value-based service. And these patients weren't going back to their hip and knee surgeon asking for more surgeries that they can't get. So I think that kind of changed their mind and they realized, okay, let's keep these 30 minute visits. This is, this is working well. And then I also have two sessions for admin time rather than just one, which I use to look up all my patients and to do my patient messages. So I think it was demonstrating that there is a value for this sort of care in the department. It takes a huge burden off of other providers. Great point. Absolutely great point. And to that, to that end, Brian, I'd like you to jump back in and now sort of segue into the primary spine care model or provider model and your experience about that. And Todd, feel free to jump in as well. You guys are both very conversant with this issue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, I love this conversation because, you know, the impact of that first practitioner and the first touch within the system is so very important. It's so hard to unlearn. And so if a provider is, is using um, you know, pathoanatomical discussion with the patient, you, you're putting them on that wrong path that could invoke fear, that could invoke catastrophization, could decrease self-efficacy. But that same practitioner could be, you know, using language that engages the patient, you know, self-determination theory, you know, sense of control, uh, encouraging activity, in encouraging self-efficacy. So, you know, we've been really focusing on, on who their first touch practitioner is and what do they say, what do they do, what tests do they order, how do they engage a patient, do they use a biopsychosocial model, and all of these things, you know, put together. And I, I just want to pause and give a shout out because, you know, the, I think the moment that I really started to get this was a single slide that Sherry Wisner used at NAS six or eight years ago. And you know what I'm going to talk about, Sherry? It, it was just a brilliant, simple slide that showed on one side, it was either biomedical or, or patho, pathoanatomical language that clinicians almost always used, but what the patient was hearing. And then she had an, another uh, a, a yeah. correlating chart on the right that showed um, what a psychologically informed practitioner should say and what the patient heard. And I was that was just an epiphany for me, just like, Wow, you know this is a way to operationalize it, and so that's been embedded in our in our training since then. Um, yeah. Todd, what do you think? What do you, what yeah, do you think? I, I I agree. I think I, I remember that slide vividly as well, and I I think I uh, was kind of predisposed to having an epiphany, but that that finished it for me. So, so. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get back to your question, I'm sure, about silos. Um, if we can go back to that for just a second, because I think the only way to overcome that is from the top down and from the bottom up. And what I mean from the top down is leadership. Um, you know, as a department chair, um, I have a great deal of latitude in, do in running things like visit lengths, what Lynn talked about. So we attempt to um, really tailor that to the individual practice of our subspecialists, what their style is, what their patient population is, and with their input. And that has been shown to be far more uh, cost-effective, even with fewer patients. Maybe go to a 10-hour as opposed to an eight-hour day. Think out of the box to give people a little bit more time to do these administrative tasks to which Lynn alluded, and, and to think about what their patients really want. Um, the bottom-up is the patients themselves. 
um, every network is under pressure to improve their CG and HCAP scores, their patient satisfaction scores from Prescani, because that relates directly to CMS reimbursement. The best way to do that is to show a patient, uh, number one, that you're familiar with their history, number two, that you've read their chart, and number three, that you're receptive to hearing what they really want to have taken care of in this visit. And those are the three things we've identified as guiding our top box scores. And that's how we were able to educate practitioners and move those scores up a bit. So I, th I think it's coming at it from both directions, from a leadership perspective and not to uh, be too businesslike from the, the point of view of the healthcare consumer, the patient, to really um, be very, very sensitive to those needs, which is a theme that I've heard throughout this whole conversation. You know, I also heard um, Lynn say something relevant to this, I think, which is that she was able to somehow demonstrate a better outcome. And I'm wondering how important people think it is and what the individual practitioner can do to say to management, to administration, look, we've been doing this this way and we're getting a really good outcome and we should put more energy into it. Yeah, that's, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, certainly from a financial point of view, that's tough because administration would much rather see an expensive surgery, a lot of RVUs, a lot of reimbursement than somebody who knows how to take care of their problem long term. So that's really, that really is a, more of a strategic mindset and a thought for the future to develop the reputation that you're providing good care and you're partnering with the patient rather than just looking after that bottom line. And unfortunately, um, that's something those of us in leadership positions deal with all the time. And I don't really have a great answer for you. You know, I would just say that this sort of brings us back to can psychologically informed practice be delivered as a transferable skill in a real world model where we still are beholding to these current reimbursement strategies and can you effectively implement it? I mean, Lynn, I think is demonstrative of that. I've tried to live that in my practice life. Uh, Marco Campello, Dr. Campello has, has done this in his practice life. Um, so, you know, I think the answer to the question, that's what we're attempting to address here today, as well as our entire course is, this is something that you can learn and implement in a practical way and have a positive impact. And as things unfold going down the line, I think you'll be well positioned uh, to adapt to systemic changes, which I think I agree, Brian. I think they're inevitable. I think we're we cannot stay on this current traje trajectory of spine care in the United States the way it is right now. Um, and th the result of where we are is that we've got legislators getting their hands all over things. We've got healthcare administrators. I read recently we have now approaching ten healthcare administrators for every practicing physician in the United States. You know, these these this is not a sustainable model. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so to that end, I'm just kind of curious, uh, Marco, I know you've helped uh, Dr. Weiser um, instruct other providers in this, in this model of care, and uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on what you think about the transferability of this skill in a practical way to people, and can they implement it uh, with training? Well, it, I, um, I was just thinking about, I mean, I think one of the issues that we encounter initially, and I, I'm going to give a secret there on Sherry's slide, it's been more than 10 years, it's been 20 something years that she had that slide, and it's still a novelty, um, unfortunately. Um, but uh, 
I think one of the key issues is uh, we were lucky enough to produce um, uh, data to show that worked. Um, I think what, at, by starting putting out there, uh, we were able to bring, for example, um, the Workers' Compensation Board of the state of New York to listen to us and our results. And that generated a big change in terms of uh, bringing psychology into musculoskeletal care, which was a big no-no previously. So I think, you know, uh, it, it is a challenge, but it's doable. Um, we are seeing, for example, nowadays that um, even our education is a problem. Our, you know, the, the uh, medical school, physical therapist school, nursing school, these are one of the big silos that we have to break because that's where it starts to close our mind rather than open the mind. Right. Absolutely. So, so I think that's one of the big issues. And we know from data, from recent data now, that um, PIPT or even guidelines are now, um, the way we do it is people learn after they graduate. It's a postgraduate. How can we bring at least this a little bit early on? I think would be, I, I, I have a big hope that we start to get this information already in, in when we are forming clinicians, not afterwards. And, but, you know, it's still a challenge. That's why we've been talking about guidelines for the past 30 years, right? So. Right. And we know that, that non-concordant guideline care tends to actually be adverse to outcome over time, right? Really a low value care, aggressive biomedical intervention. Mm -hmm. Frequently, actually those patients over time trend out more negatively um, than they would otherwise. So, um, so Sherry, any further questions or thoughts that you'd like to extract from our panel as long as we've got them together? Yeah, I think that um, part of the reason that it's difficult to implement is that non-mental health care providers feel uncomfortable when you say psychology. And I think that what we're trying to do, obviously, is not make them psychologists, but teach them specific skills that are useful in working with patients that can make a huge difference, as many people have said here today. So I think it's important to keep in mind that we're really talking about how we educate the patient, how we communicate with the patient, and also, more importantly, if you have a patient who you feel that you can't handle or they seem to have more psychological problems than you were prepared to deal with, no one to refer that patient, right? So that's, that's an important part of this too. And if we can get that message out that we're not asking you to be psychologists, that we're asking you to change very simple things about the way you interact with patients, even if it's not a natural thing, um, I think we can do a lot of good and we can make a big difference. I recall a conversation I had with Jim Rainville from uh, Harvard. Uh, they did a, a little study where they simply sat down and gave evidence-based reassuring messaging to patients with a pre and post visual analog scale and reduced the patient's pain report subjectively by 50% just having that conversation and people stand up routinely and say, and I'm sure um, Lynn experiences this as well, right? 
and, and Dr. Campello. They, thank you. I feel better, right? And then when Marco said we have to get buy-in, that's that is the key moment of buy-in. So um, it's been a great conversation. Um, I'd like to bring it to a close. Before I do so, I'd just like to run through and let everybody uh, have an opportunity for a final quick thought. Um, it's a rare chance, I think, to have uh, these great folks together. So I want to capitalize on that. So uh, Brian, maybe if you just kick off and we can come down the ladder. Sure. Um, you know, going back to value-based reimbursement modeling, um, value is, if you define it as outcomes over cost, we have to start collecting outcome measures consistently, and they should be patient-reported outcome measures. Um, and, and the Promise database out of NIH is may, may be the best answer there as well. Um, and I just want to reinforce the power of, of this course and psychologically informed practice because the power of language has a huge impact on neuroplasticity, and it's neuroplasticity that's that drives chronicity. We are sometimes creating chronic back pain by the actions of those early contact providers. And so that's a really important and somewhat painful um, lesson to hear. Joel Stevens' article did in, in JAM a couple of years ago, I thought really brought that out pretty, pretty clearly. But also because of neuroplasticity, we can, through psychological inform, encouragement, engagement, and, and, and patient activity, you can Rebend, you know, that neuroplastic mind that we have in, into helping people with chronic pain in ways that we haven't fully explored yet. So I really think that that you folks are on to on the future of where we need to emphasize musculoskeletal care. Great, Lynn. Um, so you guys were uh, discussing whether this is a transferable skill, and I I absolutely believe that it is. Um, but I think the provider really has to want to do this as well and has to feel that there is support from the departments. I can imagine situations where I don't do injections, which is great because if I did, there would be great incentive for me to do these expensive RVU-based injections in clinic. Now, the fact that I don't have that option, I, I kind of did, and then it just went away because it wasn't working well for, for these back pain patients. All I can provide is really value-based care. So if you, have, if you have a department where they're just pushing injections, it's gonna be very hard for the provider that even wants to provide this sort of care to, to choose that rather than the higher reimbursable injections. And then they're never really gonna get good at that skill, even if they have that little bit of desire. So I think that's an important thing to, um, to invest in and to kind of plan out your department. Who are gonna be the people that are gonna do interventional procedures and who are the ones that we're really going to the talk reassure look at imaging, sit with the patient, discuss things with them, and like really figure out a plan of care together and be their kind of point person. So that's super important. I think that's really helped foster this for me as, as something that I, I really I, I enjoy doing and that I want to do. I, I'm going to mm -hmm. take out, get out of my chair, my, uh, take off my <laughs> chair, chair hat here for a second and jump in. <laughs> so I, I agree with you. Um, in some respects, but I think continuity of messaging is critical. And even though I'm going to walk in the room and do an epidural injection on somebody that arguably where I've got a patient face down, prepped in the floor and the C-arm, yeah. I, I still have an opportunity to put my hand on that patient, yeah. still have an opportunity to reinforce what Lynn just said to me, to, to the patient. Um, and I do think, and that's why we entitled this panel discussion, It Takes a Village, because it really is that sort of integrative sum effect. Yeah. And then when patients start to hear it across multiple providers yeah. and multiple disciplines, the buy-in mm -hmm. augments, right? So really mm -hmm. important point. Thanks for bringing that mm -hmm. up. So uh, Dr. Campello. 
Final sorry, thought. sorry. Yeah, no, I think, yes, I think the idea is we want to, to empower the patient. We want them to be the, 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 the subject of the, their own person and, and they can, they have a lot to do. And we have to let the patients know that they have a tremendous opportunity to take care of their own, to, to lead their own care. And, uh, and we as clinicians should, again, as you said, through the same message and reassurance, we, that's the way we can actually return the power to the patient rather than them keeping them passive uh, um, agents in their own care. So Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Todd? Well, uh, certainly if this is going to change my, uh, I believe it needs to come from the top down with changes in clinical, administrative leadership and reimbursement. Value-based care, we are being paid for outcomes, not for the volume of services delivered. And really a recognition of one's responsibility as a healer. I'd like to close with this idea of distress, particularly in spine patients. These patients are in a great deal of distress. And something you said earlier, Greg, about the VAS changing before and after a good intake uh, evaluation. A number of years ago, we did a study where we simply changed the end plates on the VAS scale from zero to 10. Zero was no pain. 10 was worst pain imaginable. People took 100 of those. Then we changed the 10 to suicidal. There was no change at all in the scores. Zero. Wow. And that says to me, this is a very, very distressed group of patients, which means we have to be very attuned to that and make that part of our care paradigm. That is our charge as providers, right? I mean, to help the patients that we serve. And uh, boy, that's a cogent comment. Thank you very much, Todd. So Sherry, um, any final thoughts? You know, I think that's a great place to end. And I would just say, again, we need to demystify this idea of what PIP is so that people feel that they can actually implement it and do it. And I think that just comes from us talking to each other in groups like this and having more interdisciplinary uh, conversations and approaches together. Yeah, I think that's why you and I have slaved for the better part of two years to put this together. So it's been a, it's been a great project. I wanna thank each and every one of you for joining us today. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully we can reprise the conversation at some point in the future when we start to see some positive uh, changes in the system. Uh, so uh, with that, I will sign off on behalf of uh, North American Spine Society, my co-chair, Sherry Weiser, thank you very much, uh, and uh, we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.